keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were sore afraid, King James says in his version. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be to all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be the sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And so that account there given for us in Luke kind of reminds me of this picture that we have in the Old Testament of the armies of Israel going into war led by the music department. Amen. Yeah. Led by the minister of music. All right. And they go in with the choir before the soldiers show up. So this angelic choir appears to the shepherds there, Luke tells us, and they, they sing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to men to whom he is pleased. That's this side. In the heavenly realms that we can't see, that place where we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, Paul tells us, against rulers and authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. It reminds us of Daniel's prayer. And when the answer comes, it comes with the news that there's a war going on, Daniel, that you're not aware of. That I couldn't even come and bring you the answer to this prayer without that battle being fought. Led by Michael, it tells us in Daniel chapter 10, against what was called the Prince of Persia. So when we come to what some commentators call this violent nativity in Revelation 12, we're not faced with shepherds and wise men and little calm donkeys and sheep and a, and a mother and a baby and a father there in a, in a manger scene. We are faced with this terrible red dragon that is more awful, I think, than, than we could imagine. And, and the words that are given for us here of, of, of this dragon and this vision that we see before us, we'll just, let's just read it. Let's just follow along as I read in Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. 
Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of great eagle of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she will be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sea, on the sand of the sea. Revelation is the unveiling, right? I mean, that's that's what the term means. That's what the word means. Revelation is, is the curtain drawn back. And as that curtain is drawn back here in Revelation chapter 12, we have before us this, you know, this artist rendering that you see on the screen. You can you can take that down now, John. I don't want we'll be distracted by it. We'll be sitting there trying to figure out all that stuff. We're still trying to figure it all out. OK, just so you know, I'm still I'm still working on all that. But we have this unveiling, this 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 curtain is drawn back. And what we have here is is this picture, I believe, in Revelation 12 of a perspective that we as Christians, that we as God's people need so desperately to have. And that is this, that there is behind the scenes, if you will, in that unseen world. A very real and powerful enemy. We will see this unfolding in, in Revelation 12, 13, and 14. We'll see a lot of detail about it. We'll see things unfolding here that are going to be very strange to us, just as we see here on this page. But just kind of remember the context, all right? In Revelation chapter 11, as that seventh trumpet was blown, there was a proclamation made. All right. It is at the center of revelation. It's at the center of the universe. It's at the center should be at the center of our lives. And this is that central truth. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's it. Jesus reigns. Amen. He is seated on the throne and he is ruling and reigning and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation 11 tells us. Now, working up to that point in the first 11 chapters of Revelation, 
just remember, we, we went back in Revelation chapter 1, and this, this door was open for John to look up and peer up into heaven as he's in exile on Patmos. Revelation 2 and 3 are these letters to seven churches, seven contemporary churches then, seven relevant messages for us now. And the messages of the letters were, here's the deal, here's what you're facing, churches. You are facing the, the opportunity, the temptation to compromise. To compromise with the world around you, the culture around you. Hold firm. To them who hold firm were these promises over and over and over of reward. And that's what we had in those first three chapters. And then in Revelation 4, again, the veil is pulled back and we look into the very throne room of God. Where the Creator is seated, ruling and reigning. And then in the next chapter... We're presented with this giant angel who's holding a scroll. And who is it that's worthy to come and take that scroll? And there Jesus is presented to us. He's presented to us as the lamb and as the lion. John heard this voice of about, about the lion of the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he turned and he saw a lamb. The lamb is the lion. And the lion is the lamb. And it's Jesus. And Jesus alone is worthy to take that scroll. And to begin to unseal it. Right? And we saw those seven seals, one after the other after the other. As this terrible torment is is unleashed on the world and these spiritual forces come. And listen, believers and unbelievers are under that. And then the trumpets begin to sound. And God demonstrates his judgment on humanity. On those who will not repent. So over and over and over in these first 11 verses... These first 11 chapters, we we have this picture before us. Now, Revelation 12 begins a whole new section, all right? And it takes us kind of behind the scenes. And what we're going to have in these next three chapters, as we look first off today at the dragon, and then in the 13, we're going to look at the beast, these two beasts that come up. And it's interesting. What we have in the dragon and these two beasts, remember remember what Paul tells us about Satan, Disguises himself as an angel of light. And what is mimicked in these three chapters is the Trinity. What is mimicked here is this Trinity of power. This Trinity that comes and demonstrates power and authority and demands worship. And we're going to see that from this dragon, from Satan and these two beasts. And what we're going to see going on there is this conflict. And But don't, don't miss out what it says in verse um, 7 of chapter 13, that, that all this is allowed. Okay? Over in, over in verse 7, it says, And it was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. And authority was given to it. Never lose that image. Never lose that vision. And here's what I believe is the main point of chapter 12, and it'll be fulfilled in 13 and 14. And it's going to show us the origins, church, the origins of the struggle we, struggles we face. I, I read this term in one of the commentaries I was looking at, a Muppet regime. Not a puppet, but the Muppets, you know. These personalities, these voices, these characters, these things. And behind them is someone pulling the strings, holding the sticks, and giving them words. That's the governments of this world. And behind them is this one who we see this sign, this depiction of a dragon, Satan, 
the deceiver, the liar. We must have this perspective, church, of understanding what it is that's going on around us and why it's happening and how we should be responding to it. And I believe we're going to see that in this passage. I believe we're going to see this in this chapter. And so what we have here, as, as commentators have called it, is this violent nativity. And it is a violent nativity. It's heaven's perspective of Christmas, I believe. If, if that same angel who came to Daniel in chapter 10 could have come to Joseph and Mary and said, you guys have no idea what's going on behind the scenes up there. It's bad in the sense of violence. Not bad in the sense of outcome. What we're going to see in two different places in chapter 13 and 14, church, is this. Here is a call for endurance. Here is a call for endurance. And for faith. What is heaven's perspective on Christmas? Let's look first at this, this first part of chapter 12. It says there there's a great sign. There's been seven trumpets. There's been seven seals. Later on, there'll be seven bowls. Well, in this portion of Revelation, there are seven signs. Remember what a sign is. It's just that. It's pointing to something else. It is, it is, it is significant in and of itself, but it is pointing to something that is, that is greater, something that, is, that has this spiritual meaning to it. And so, this great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. We're going to see three characters in this first portion of chapter 12. There's the woman, there's the dragon, and there's this child that is being born. Those three characters, okay? So that's the characters in this drama. The first one is this sign of a woman. Now, what is she? And what is she pointing to? Notice her characteristics. What does it say there? She is clothed with the sun. There's a radiance there that just leaps off the page. There appears to be some kind of dominion there because she has the moon at her feet, all right? And she has on her head these 12 stars, this crown of 12 stars. Now, the options here, as there always are in Revelation, there's options, right? Catholic theologians look at this as a picture of the Virgin Mary. I don't hold to that. We should not hold to that. It is a sign Okay, I don't believe it's a person. It is a sign pointing to something else. Some believe that this woman represents the church. Oh, hush. Why is my watch talking to me? I'm turning it off. He said, I'm having trouble hearing you. Well, you're not listening. All right. Some of you may have that trouble. All right. He's off now. Okay. He's off. I don't even know why I put that watch on. I never wear that watch on Sunday. So, where was I? Lordy mercy, that was a distraction. All right, this woman is radiant. All right? I, oh, she's not the church. Here's, here's why I don't believe she's the church. Not Later on, her offspring, I believe they are the church. They are the church. Later on, it tells us that, that the ones who come from her are the ones who hold to the testimony of Jesus. They have conquered by the blood of the Lamb. They are the offspring of her who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, it tells us down there at the end of the passage in verse 17. So she can't be, she can't be the mother and the offspring at the same time. No, look at, notice, notice these characteristics. On her head is this crown of 12 stars. I believe this is a picture of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And I believe this is a picture. My, my position on this is that she represents faithful Israel from whom the Messiah would come. I believe she represents the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and the fulfillment of, of, of God's promise to David. I think she's a sign pointing to that fulfillment. Part of the reason I believe that is because of different passages in the Old Testament that kind of indicate that. Isaiah chapter 54, listen to this, Isaiah 54, 1 through 3. Sing, O barren one, and do not, who do not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and the people in desolate cities. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4 refers to Isaiah 54 when he says this, talking about Israel and Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem. And he says in Galatians 4.26, the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear and break forth and cry aloud. You are not in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. I believe this is a picture of God's promise to Israel. They forsook that promise. So many turned, but there was a faithful remnant. And through that faithful remnant, God had promised and indeed did promise that the Messiah would come. Remember the prophecy in Micah about Bethlehem? Micah chapter 5, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. We usually stop reading there. Listen to verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until a time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace, it says in chapter 5. I think she's a representation, a sign pointing to those faithful in Israel and God's promise to Abraham that through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And ultimately that fulfillment comes in Jesus. Notice what it says next, that she is in pain, birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. Isaiah twenty six seventeen, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pains when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord God. Those faithful were yearning for God to fulfill that promise, groaning for God to be to fulfill that promise. And I believe that's the picture we have here. She's a sign pointing to that. What about the second sign? Notice what it says. There's another sign appeared in heaven. A great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on its head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This dragon... Man, we could go on a long time about dragons, all right? And we're not going to today. I've studied them some this week. I'm fascinated with them. Um, there's references in the Old Testament that just stretch your imagination. They stretch your mind a little bit in, in considering this creature. But this creature is, is it's unique here in Revelation 12 because it is a sign. All right? So it's pointing 
to something. What's unique about this is I believe this dragon is a person and a, and a sign. I believe he is a person and he is also representing something beyond that. Let me explain what I mean by there. First off, notice he has seven heads. Seven is an important number. We've talked about the numbers in Revelation. Seven is this picture of totality. This is a picture, I believe, of complete universal power. All right? He has these seven heads. He has ten horns, kind of reminiscent of what we saw in Daniel chapter 7. And these horns are representative of kingly power. But he has these diadems, okay? And I was noticing a couple of commentators this week as I was studying pointed out the difference between the word diadem, which... The, the dragon has, and the word in Greek, which is pronounced Stephanos, which is a crown. All right, the crown, according to these commentators, is is a permanent sign of rule, a permanent sign, where a diadem is granted authority, that which could be given temporarily, power that's kind of put into stewardship of someone. So this dragon is 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 a person, as we'll see later on in the passage. But it's also, I believe, a representation of everything that opposes God and opposes his people. That's that's what this represents. The psalmist in Psalm 74 likened the dragon or the Leviathan to Egypt. In Ezekiel chapter 29, listen to what it says in verse 3. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says, my Nile is mine own. I made it for myself. So the dragon in the Old Testament would represent all that stood against God, all those opposed to his rule. And notice that this dragon, the size of it just defies our imagination because the tail of it is long enough to swing and swipe down, he says, a third of the stars of heaven. What in the world is this? And cast them down to the earth. What is what does this mean? This casting down. All right. Guess what? There are options, all right? There are options, okay? I did not take a class in Revelation in seminary. I was not that crazy, all right? I did not take that class. But I imagine those tests would have been multiple choice, all right? And I don't know that there would have been one correct answer in that. I'm just, just my, you know, I'm just kind of wondering about that. What, is it, what does this mean that this tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth? Well, my personal position is this is referring to a past event, but I think it foreshadows what we're going to see later on in Revelation chapter 20. That past event that I think it refers to is something that we studied when we were in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Satan, as we will see later in contrast to this son, wanted to ascend and have the throne. And he was cast down. And at some point in eternity past, I believe before the creation of this world, this rebellion in heaven took place. This war took place. And Satan was cast down. I think, I think this is a picture of that. 
But we also know later on coming in the book of Revelation that he will be cast down. And those who follow him, the nations and the governments and the kings and the princes, those who follow him will be cast down with him. All right. So I, I, I think this I think this points to the past, but foreshadows what's coming. Verse nine. Look down ahead in verse nine. Verse nine makes it real clear who this dragon is. All right. We don't have to guess about this. this there's no subjective wondering about this. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent. Uh, Genesis three. Mm-hmm. That ancient serpent. It says there. Lost my place there. Who is called the devil. Diabolos and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him or his demons were thrown down with him. So there's this picture of him being cast out of heaven. Now, I think what we see down there in verse nine gives us a different dimension to it. What's going on here? Well, it's a cosmic assassination attempt, as one one commentator called it. Verse four, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore a child, he might devour it. Now, the writers now, John, as he writes this and those who heard it, they would have had no problem recognizing some parallels here with old myths, old legends. Well, even us, I mean, we should remember some of these old stories, right? This usurper wants to come and take the throne. There's this plot. There's this work behind the scenes so that the one who is the rightful heir, when he is born, he'll be killed so this usurper can take the throne or reverse it. When the son is born, he decides he's going to try to take the throne later on and is raised to that goal of killing that adversary. So this myth, this idea of this This throne that's in doubt would not have been unusual. It's not unusual to us. I mean, we we can recognize that this usurper here, though, this dragon seems to want to take the throne. And this vision. All right. Just think about this vision for a minute. Here's here's a woman. Agonizing. In birth pains. She's she's on that birthing table, if you want to think that far. And this creature is standing there with his mouth open. And as soon as that child makes an appearance, he'll consume it. It is grotesque. It's an image that we really don't want to dwell on much. And it is meant, I believe, to disgust us. Because evil should do that. We are so prone to violence and so addicted to action that when we see evil in all its ugliness, it just rolls off our back like water on a duck. But this vision of this monster waiting to consume this newborn child is meant to show us the true nature of evil. Make no mistake about it, church. Those who desire to take the lives of children, born or unborn, are carrying out the work of their father, Satan. All right? That's just the way it is. That's the way it is. Satan hates babies. Always has and always will. And as we see this monster waiting to consume this child, we see this usurper waiting to take the throne. Or in his mind... To hold on to what is his anyway. 
but it doesn't work. Notice, notice what it says. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. As you read that and as you think about it, these words should come to mind from Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman as he speaks to the serpent. Enmity. He will hate you. He will always pursue you. He will want your destruction. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. He is a murderer. And that's what he seeks to accomplish. And here he wanted to murder this newborn child. The one who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. It didn't take long in Genesis. He worked through Cain to kill Abel. But that didn't work. Later on. He worked through Pharaoh to try to kill all the babies of the Israelites. That didn't work. Later on, he worked through Saul to try to kill David. That didn't work. Later on, he worked through Haman to try to kill all of the Jews, to plot genocide of that race. That didn't work. In the New Testament, Herod, that puppet of Satan, Sought to kill all the male children. And did except for Jesus. That didn't work. Early in his ministry as Jesus preached that after that first message where he took the scroll of Isaiah. And said today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Satan worked behind the scenes in those puppet religious leaders to try to drag Jesus out and throw him over the edge of a cliff. Luke 4. It's early in Jesus' ministry. That didn't work. Later on in the Gospel of John, when Jesus equates himself to God, they picked up stones and tried to kill him. And he just walked through them. It didn't work then. Do you begin to see a pattern? Satan is a loser. But he is powerful. He is fearsome. He thought he had won when Jesus was nailed to the cross, right? I missed him when he was born. But I got him now. Wrong. You didn't have him then. He failed. You see, over and over and over he fails. Now we will see, because he recognizes that his time is short, because he has been cast out of heaven, he is not a lame dog ready to lay down and give up. He's a wild, crazy animal backed in the quarter. Who in his death will take everything and anything with him. We'll see that. So as this dragon fails in his mission, the child prevails in his. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Again, we see the fulfillment that we saw a couple of weeks ago of Psalm 2. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is fulfilled in this picture that we have here of this child. But what is up with this Man, you talk about a Cliff Notes version of the gospel. Look at this. She gave birth. He was caught up to God and to his throne. 
Really? Is that all there is to it? It's like this massive panoramic view. I, I remember going to, to Atlanta and seeing there in, um, I forget the, even the name of the, 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 the display that we saw, the museum we were in. It was, it was a display of the Civil War, but there's this massive panoramic three-dimensional view of, of the Civil War. And it's, imagine looking at this whole panorama in front of you, just showing this whole massive picture of, of all that went on in the Civil War. And, and it's not there, but what if there was just this little thing down below that said, and the North won? Well, you'd have to know the rest of the story, right? To know what was going on there? Well, we've been given the rest of the story already in the book of Revelation. All right? I mean, Revelation chapter 4 and 5 gave us these, these details of this one who is now on the throne ruling and reigning. The one who is worthy to take the scroll. This lion of the tribe of Judah. And why is it that John just, it's like this little caption underneath this whole book of pictures that gives us this, this image of this child being born, living, ministering, serving, dying, being buried, resurrected, and ascended, except it jumps from the birth to the ascension. And the emphasis there, I believe, is to point to the fact that number one, we've already seen some of these details of, of what went on in the life of this child. But this ascension is without a doubt the undeniable proof that Jesus is who he is and that Satan is defeated. Satan wanted that seat, sought it and rebelled to get it. Jesus came down, laid aside took on the form of a servant and laid down his life. And that throne is now his. And that's this picture that we see here of Jesus being raised from the dead and ascending back up to the Father. One commentator said the way up really is found in a willingness to go down. And that's what we see. That's the contrast that we see here in this. Well, what happens what happens to those that are left behind? Good grief. Jesus, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she has been nourished for 1,260 days. We'll talk more about the time frame. We've already talked about that some, but we'll see it more. 1,260 days is time, times and a half a time. It is three and a half years as, as we see. We'll, we'll get into the time frame. But what about this flight into the desert? This wilderness place where she is taken. Well, think for just a minute back into the Old Testament. What about the first Exodus? When God led his people out of slavery in Egypt, where did he take them? He took them to the wilderness. And what was the purpose of the wilderness? The writer of Hebrews tells us that the purpose of the wilderness was a place of testing, a place for them to grow in their faith. It was a place for them to experience, as we see in the book of Exodus, the protection of God, the provision of God, the guidance of God, where they meet God on that mountain, where they hear from him and get his law and are led by God's faithful servants. It's a place of testing and preparation and protection. But there's one other aspect to the wilderness in the Old Testament that lots of times I forget about. I'm probably not the only one. Listen to what the prophet said in the book of Hosea. 
Chapter 2, therefore, behold, I will allure her. Now, who's the prophet talking about? He's talking about a prostitute. He's talking about rebellious, adulterous people, as in God's people. He's talking about people that deserve to be judged and cast aside. And in the book of Hosea, we have this picture of a loving husband in our God who pursues that prostitute, seeks to win her back, and loves her with a covenant love. And where does he take this restored wife? I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness, it says in verse 14, and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as in the times when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. So the place of wilderness is a place of courtship. It's a place of love. It's a place where... We learn and experience the forgiving grace of God, the covenant love of God, and what it means to belong to Him and Him alone. And I believe we see that here. I guess you can figure out, we're not going to get through the rest of this today. You know, when I, when I put this sermon together, you know, I've got it all on the pages and I'm... You know, and then Saturday night and then on Sunday morning, I'm going through it, kind of working through it, praying through it. And I realized this morning about 515, ain't no way we're going to get all the way through this. But that's okay. That's okay. What can we learn from these first few verses? What do we see here? Well, I hope we recognize first off, as I mentioned at the very beginning, There is a dimension around us, church, that we must be aware of. We are not frozen in fear by it, but we are foolish if we ignore it. We're foolish if we ignore it. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And when we look around us and wonder why, what is going on here? What in the world is happening here? We should remember we are not a world evolving to greater good. We are devolving under the weight and oppression of sin. We are, as Paul says in Romans, in a world that's groaning for the day of redemption. Groaning for the day of redemption. And as we do that, then we recognize around us that we will not now or ever find our salvation, our security, our provision, our hope. There will be no promise to us in the kings and kingdoms and things of this world. They do not belong to Christ. They are under his sovereign hand, but they do not belong to him. That's why Satan could go on the mountaintop and offer the kingdoms of this world to Jesus if he would just bow down and worship to him. So we must recognize and be aware of the enemy that we have, of his power. But we also must be confident that though this world with devil's field should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. This prince of darkness, grim, 
we tremble not for him. His rage, we can't endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. And that word is above all earthly powers, Martin Luther goes on to tell us, as we see in our text here today. And we will see this dragon pursue the woman and her offspring, and I believe that is the church, that is those people who hold to the commandments of God and to the testimony of Jesus. That is those people who hold to and have put their faith and confidence in the power of the blood of Christ. That's, that's, that's what we'll see. We can be confident there. All right? But it is a call for endurance. It is a call for endurance. We'll see this unfold as we get further into this passage. All right? Let's pray together. Father, today we thank you for pulling back the veil and letting us see into this war room, if you will. Father, the, the demonic host and their prince lined up and did all they could to come against you. And they were and are defeated. We praise you and thank you for that. We praise you and thank you that when Jesus there on that cross said it is finished, that it is finished. Father, I pray today that if there's anyone in this room or hearing this or watching it that Father, is still carrying around the burden of guilt for sins that they've just never, Lord, they've never dealt with that. They've never, maybe they never heard that there is a conquering king, a hero, who came and lived and died so that they could be freed from that oppression, freed from that guilt, freed from that sin, and freed from that fear of this enemy. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in their hearts and just speak the freeing news of the gospel to them. That this child was born. That he lived sinlessly. Perfectly. That he died on the cross as a substitute for those who had rebelled against you. And that anyone who puts their faith and trust in this crucified, risen, ascended king. Has his life. His hope. His forgiveness. Father, I pray you'd speak that truth to someone. And Father, I pray that we as your church... Lord, remind us that we tremble not for him, but we are fools if we ignore him. Lord, help us be wise to the wiles and tendencies of our enemy. And help us rest and trust in the blood of Jesus. And be ready to give the reason for the hope that we have in him. And I pray that in his precious and holy name. Amen.